Good morning. Will you guys turn in your Bibles to Psalm 137? We got a we've got a difficult psalm this morning, folks. It's difficult to read. It's uh, extremely difficult to think about reading and then having to preach on. It's not. It's it's hard, and that's going to become really apparent here in a few minutes. Why um, this psalm? is so controversial, not for the majority of the psalm, but just for the very end. At the very end of the psalm, things seem to kind of take a turn, and it gets brutal and ugly. And it's been so controversial in the history of the church that entire denominations have taken the last two verses of this psalm out of their liturgy entirely. So if you go to a super high church church, and you guys read a different psalm every single week, and you get to Psalm 137, you only get six verses. You don't get all the verses. Because they've said, look, this just is too tough. So I'm going to read the psalm for us this morning, and we're going to do something that may be a little bit unorthodox. The majority of what I'm going to do this morning is give you the background story for this psalm. If you're going to be able to hear it and understand it and wrap your mind around it and kind of walk out of here without feeling totally bereft, then you got to know the context. And so we're going to spend a ton of time doing that. And then I'm just going to make like one single point of application about the psalm. And then we're going to close uh, with a bit of hope, I believe. Um, so if part of it sounds like a history lesson, it is sort of, but I think that's a good thing. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning as I read Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we trust your word. We feel, lots of parts of your word feel difficult to understand, but we're not interested in walking away from it. We want to be honest and learn about it and grow from it. And we understand that a a huge part of believing in you means trusting your word. But this morning, we're really going to need your spirit here to help us do that. But we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. Uh, So the great context of Psalm 137 is the story of the Babylonian exile. Now, the Babylonian exile is a critical, critical piece of the entire Bible. It's a story that at its heart, really helps explain a lot of what's going on in the Old Testament and a lot of what's going on in the New Testament. But it's a really, really, really difficult story to piece together because the way the Bible tells the story of the Babylonian exile is a bit like um, 
like a Quentin Tarantino movie or something. You've got to go to a million different places and be competent at connecting the dots. Otherwise, you don't get it. So you kind of get a little bit at the end of Second Kings, and then you get a little more in the second half of Isaiah, and then you get some in Jeremiah, and then Ezra and Nehemiah sort of round out the story. But even when you get to the New Testament, there's still this element of exile. So you've got to be able to kind of go to all these different places. So this morning, I'm going to give to you a simple, I hope, condensed harmony of the Babylonian exile and then set you loose in the rest of your Bibles, able to understand them much better. But the context, the, the, this whole thing, the whole issue of the Babylonian exile, of course, starts right after the fall. After the fall... Uh, Adam and Eve sin, and all their children with them become, fall with them in sin. And God comes to Adam, and He makes a covenant with Adam even after they sin. And He says, "Look, I'm going to be your God. Your seed, you are going. Your wife is going to have a seed that crushes the head of the serpent that tricked you." And then God renews that covenant with Abraham, and then God renews it again at Sinai with Moses. And in Exodus chapters 19 through 24, God walks the Israelites to Mount Sinai. Moses ascends the hill and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And God says, if you obey me, if these commandments are something that you write everywhere in your whole life and you take them seriously, you're not going to have, you're not going to be in, he, he had already delivered them out of the land of Egypt and he said, you're going to have a place to live. I'm going to give you a place to lay your head. I'm going to give you this place called the promised land. Well, of course, the Israelites were disobedient. And much of the, the story of the, whole, of the Old Testament is the series of tragedies that befall them because of their perpetual disobedience. So hundreds of years after uh, the Ten Commandments are given... In 722 B.C., by this point, the northern and the... uh, This is where you guys could glaze over, but stick with me. The northern and the southern kingdom of Israel split. And the northern kingdom gets invaded by Assyria. Now, Judah is the northern kingdom's southern counterpart. It's like you can think about it like in America. You got the north and you got the south. Judah is in the south. They don't have the same tragedies going on quite yet as as their northern neighbors do. So for about 120 or 130 years, Judah continues to have kings of their own rule over them. But, and the last of those kings was a man by the name of Josiah. Now Josiah was, in terms of Israelite kings, an okay king. He was decent. He labored to kind of give us give Israel some reforms and start them get them back towards the book of the law but Josiah died in battle with the Egyptians. And when Josiah dies that's sort of the beginning of the end for Judah. Things just get immediately get way 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 worse. Three other kings come up, and then in the whole region, you've got three big powers that are jockeying for control of this region. You've got Egypt, you've got Assyria, and you've got Babylon. And at this time, Babylon gets rid of Assyria, gets rid of Egypt, and takes over the land of Judah and puts a heavy tax on all the people in Judah. 
And the kings of Judah start to get angry. They get frustrated. They don't want to be treated that way. You wouldn't want to be treated that way. And so they're being taxed heavily and they begin to rebel. And as they rebel, Babylon gets more and more angry. And 597 B.C., they rebel and Nebuchadnezzar shows up, surrounds Jerusalem and says, that's it. You're not going to rebel anymore. But compared to what they're going to do soon, they were lenient. They took all of the they took the kings and all of the sort of elite out of Israel, out of Judah, and they put them in exile in Babylon. Well, for the next ten years, the the king Zedekiah sort of ruled over Judah, and then after ten years, Zedekiah rebels too, and Nebuchadnezzar comes back, and he's no longer as lenient. Nebuchadnezzar surrounds the walls of Jerusalem and makes sure that no food can get into the city. And a famine, of course, strikes Jerusalem at the exact same time, and the people begin to starve. And the starving and the hunger get so bad that the warriors of Judah have nothing left to do but to open up a breach in their own wall and try to rush out of the city to get food to bring it back in. But of course, Nebuchadnezzar has put siege works and a whole army surrounding the city. And when they run out, Nebuchadnezzar chases them down, scatters them all out around Jericho, and comes back in and snaps up King Zedekiah and snaps up his children. And Nebuchadnezzar kills all of Zedekiah's sons right in front of his face. And then he gouges Zedekiah's eyes out and marches all of Israel into Babylon, into exile in Babylon. The very last thing that Zedekiah saw before going to exile was his children die. That's the context of Psalm 137. These are a grieving, broken, hurt people. And so they start this psalm and they say, When we were by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. And here their captors have no mercy on them. And they start saying things to them like, Hey, why don't you sing a song for us? Pick up your, pick up your lyre, which is just a small harp. Pick up your heart and harp and sing us a song for us. How about you sing us one of those songs that David used to sing? Like that one, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Sing that one. That's really funny, right? Because you're God. I mean, here you are in Babylon after all these terrible things have happened to you. Where is your God now? So Israel is in a moment of terrible, terrible heartache. And when you hear something like that, when you're mocked like that, like Israel was, what do you do? Well, what Israel did is they hung up their lyres in total defiant protest. And they said, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land? To sing the songs of Zion, of God, to sing God's songs in front of God's enemies just to be mocked, there's no way we could ever do that. And so the, the psalmist here says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill and let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. I'd rather lose my capacity to play music and sing music than let God be mocked by the gifts that God gave me. But there's another element to this question. So if you look at this question in verse 4, the writer says, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now, you all will remember, maybe last week, David made the really shrewd and illuminating observation that somehow when the spies entered Canaan, 
they talked to Rahab and Rahab said, I know about, I know about your God. I know about your God. I know that the God of Israel, because I've heard about it for 40 years, defeated Og and defeated Sion and your God delivered you out of the land of Egypt and he created the whole world. So I know about my gods, but I know about your gods too. And your gods, your God must be amazing and great. And so I'm totally down with the plot to overthrow Jericho because your God seems to be better than mine. But we're in a different situation here. Now it's something completely different. Now we're in Babylon and the question is completely reversed. Have the gods of Babylon all of a sudden defeated the gods of the God of Israel? Can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That's sort of the other side of this question that they're asking. And that's really, in some ways, the question that stalks us through the whole Psalter. It's the question that stalks us through much of the Bible. Ever since Adam ate of the fruit of the tree, ever since Cain slayed his brother, we're sitting there and we're looking at these stories and we're saying, this is so brutal and hard to read. Where could God possibly be in all of this? And so the writers of Psalm 137 are saying the same thing. Where is God in all of this terrible, terrible mess? Well, part of the answer is at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel. Don't turn there. I'm just going to say this very quickly. Ezekiel, I told you that in, um, at the beginning of the exile, at the beginning of the Babylonian exile, before all of the people went away, just some of the elite, the high priests and the kings, were taken into, Israel, into exile in Babylon. And one of those people was the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, his whole book is this wild vision of God promising something to his people and then eventually delivering them. But the beginning of the vision is set by the narrator in a very specific place. It's on the banks of the canal of Kabar. Now, I know you guys don't know anything about the canal of Kabar, but all that is is the rivers of Babylon. That's the waters of Babylon. So you got this psalmist and Psalm 137 saying, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept. And in the same moment, you've got Ezekiel standing just a small expanse away from him, getting a brand new vision from the God of Israel about their deliverance. And what's the nature of Ezekiel's vision? Well, if you go and you read Ezekiel 1, it's crazy, it's hard to follow, but the gist of it is is that Ezekiel sees the likeness of God, and for Ezekiel in that moment, the likeness of God was for living creatures and a wheel all kind of burning and swirling around the place. And as many commentators have said, all Ezekiel's trying to say there is, we got a God that's on the move now. The God of Israel is no longer, a tri- He's not a tribal deity. He doesn't just sit enthroned in glory over Jerusalem. Now He's the King of the entire earth whether His people are in Babylon or in Jerusalem or anywhere else, the God of Israel is on the move. And what happened under that realization, when the people of Israel had that realization, and under their grief of exile, it would have been so easy for Israel to say, man, let's just assimilate and become a part of Babylon. Let's just compromise. This is too hard to be this completely different people with a completely different set 
of religious practices? Why don't we just all the way down to the gods that we worship? Let's just abandon the God of Israel and join Babylon and at least live in peace for the rest of, our, for the rest of their life. They could have let that happen, but they didn't. In fact, we believe that this moment in Israel's history is where the Old Testament began to be compiled. Everything that we read in our liturgy this morning, from Isaiah 12 to Psalm 126, which we sang, except for the Corinthians passage, everything else comes straight from that moment. These people are saying, we got to put this stuff together and bind our hearts again to the God of Israel. The exile, the Babylonian exile started a revolution. It started a total revival of the way that the people of Israel worshiped their God. And up to this point, explaining the psalm, we're in good shape, right? Nothing controversial thus far. You make it your six verses. There's, this is a very unhappy people in a very unhappy situation that are deciding to pledge devotion to God. Nobody's got a problem with that. But then things get grim. We have this thing where, where uh, the final verses document Edom, the close relative of the Judeans, and their awful treason and betrayal on the day that Jerusalem was destroyed. Then we have this, what we call an imprecation, this curse that involves the killing of children. And so I think we can just say a few words about that. I think with things like this, it's super easy, like we said at the beginning, to avoid something like that. But that doesn't help anybody because someday you're going to find this on your own and you're going to say, what on earth am I supposed to do with that? The one thing that I think is important to hear when you read these last verses is to realize that the gist of what the writer is saying is, I don't want the people that have oppressed us for years and years and years to be able to be renewed. One commentator said you could just translate this verse super simply and you'd get the same idea. And he just said, happy is the man that puts an end to your self-renewing domination. In other words, happy is the man who stops Babylon from being capable at oppressing all of these different people. Now, he, the writer could have written it that way, couldn't he? He could have written it that way, but the problem is, is that these people don't know how to cloak uh, verses like that in sort of abstract and cold and stoic formulations. That's the way we do things in sort of bourgeois Americana. But that's not the way that they did things. They don't know how to say things like that. And that's the hard point about this psalm. We know so little of what these people had to endure. The great uh, pastor, Baptist pastor, Charles Spurgeon said on this passage, Let those find fault with it who have never seen their temple burned, their city ruined, their wives ravished, and their children slain. They might not perhaps be quite so velvet-mouthed if they had suffered after this fashion. It's one thing to talk of the bitter feeling which moved captive Israelites in Babylon and quite another thing to be captives ourselves under a savage and remorseless power which knew not how to show mercy but delighted in barbarities to the defenseless. Well, it would be easy and really true at this point to just say, that's all fine and I, I guess I'm following you, but I just am having a terrible time relating to this. The store, these stories of history are so cold and brutal and distant and just utterly violent 
that I just don't know what relevance it could possibly have for my life. But I suspect that that's not entirely the case. I suspect, I mean, I know that there's some of us in this room that have been wounded extremely, extremely deeply. And if Psalm 137 doesn't tell you anything else, it tells you that there's a way that God longs for you to express great, great pain. It at least tells you that. It may be that you're like the Israelites and like me, and you brought much of the wounds that you've walked around in this world with on yourself. Or it may be that you're the person that someone victimized you in a way that you didn't deserve, or possibly providence has just convened in your life and it's been such that you've had to suffer. But I suspect that however it happened and whatever element is true about you, you struggle to know how to relate to God in those parts of your life. It's difficult to know how to talk to God when wound and pain combine to become rage. When Even if it doesn't express itself in the same way that it does for this psalmist, that's completely true, I think, for each and every one of us. And I want this is what I think we should all hear, the thing that I heard this week, I think, from Psalm 137. God wants to know you in your suffering. He wants to know you in that even when it turns kind of ugly. He doesn't expect or desire a cold and stoic son or daughter that doesn't know how to express frustration to him. He's, he's your loving father and he already knows you completely. And so when hurt and pain turn to fury in your heart, go to him. And don't make the mistake that I've made much of my life and go elsewhere. That's a huge mistake. Look at the example you get here of God saying, I love you so much that I'm willing for you to have prayers like this. You can come to me this way and I, it's okay and I'll hear you. Well, we don't know in conclusion, we don't know why the Psalms were organized in the way that they were. Like, we don't know why one Psalm went next to the next, right? And so I definitely don't know why Psalm 137 is put next to the beautiful Psalm that we heard last week, Psalm 136, that repeats over and over and over again that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. I can't tell you why you go from that to go to this. But I do want you to look at one thing in the next psalm, in Psalm 138, and we're going to close with this. Look at verses 2 to 5. I'm just going to read them for you. I bow bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Who's singing now? Who's singing the song of Zion now? Whose arm is twisted, is getting twisted to drag the lyre off of the willow branch and pluck the strings and rise up into a psalm for Zion now? It's the kings of the earth. It's the kings of the whole earth. It's not you. It's not you being mocked and being made to sing a song of Zion in a way that you don't want to sing. And how did that happen? Well, it happened because of verse 6. Because though the Lord is high... He regards the lowly. 
God is working towards the day when Jesus will return and do justice on this earth. And if we learn to treasure Jesus above our highest joy, like the psalmist wanted to do for Jerusalem, we're going to be there when God sets this world back to rights. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you as the author and giver of our lives, and we praise you as the author of providence. When we look back on it, there's so many things that are hard to watch, but we trust you and we love you. And we love your son, Jesus, and all the work that he's done for us. In your name we pray. Amen.